The English word love is so confusing. It lumps together different facets of love. This has given rise to the slogan, love is love. What are the ramifications of this slogan and why is it at odds with the Bible? Dr. Bill Petrie looks at these issues in this edition of Differing Things. I read a sign the other day and it said, love is love. And then I went into a local retail store and I saw a t-shirt with the same expression, love is love. The signs seem to be everywhere right now. The message is simple enough and hard to argue against. Love is love. How can you deny that? But certainly, some clarification is needed. First, not all loves are the same. The Greeks were wise enough to realize that not all loves are identical. They had four different words to clarify all the multifaceted expressions of love. Storge family love, the love of a mother to her child. This kind of love is natural, protective, nurturing. It is the mama bear syndrome. If you mess with a child, you can be pretty sure that a mom or dad will soon rise up to protect them, or at least they should, unless something strange has disrupted that natural love. Finally, friendship love, mutually accepting, mutually beneficial. One friendship helping another. This is the love of common interests, common desires, common goals. Joining together to form a common life together. This kind of love can grow as deep as time and proximity allows. And if the situation demands, one friend can sometimes give their life for another. Agape, sacrificial love, the love of the will, the love of commitment, the kind of love willing to persevere, endure, sacrifice for the benefit of the other, even when the other does not deserve it. The highest form of love. It can even rise to the level of loving one's enemy. And then there's eros, sensual love, sexual, romantic, erotic, physical love, the surge of emotion and desire, a fire that is often difficult to control or extinguish, the attraction of the eyes, the arousal of a physical touch, the hunger for sexual pleasure. The English word for love lumps all of these 
ideas together and then some. Consider, I love my child. I love my football team. I love my wife. I love chocolate. I love sex. I love a good book. I love my dog. I love my country. I love music. I love God. How confusing is that? So love is love certainly needs to be qualified. In our current culture, love is love generally means that the love between a man and a woman is no different than the love of a man and another man or a woman and another woman or perhaps a host of other arrangements. After all, Love is love. And if that was all there was to it, then I think almost everyone would agree. Biblically, we are all called to love all people. The great commandment, the foundational commandment, the most important commandment, the one that summarizes all the other commandments in the Bible is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus defined our neighbor as whomever we happen to meet in any given day. Whatever their need or situation or religion or political persuasion may be. This, folks, is agape love, and it has no limits. The depth of love between a man and another man or a woman and another woman can be as deep as a man and a woman, even deeper, even stronger. In the Old Testament, Jonathan loved David as he loved his own soul, desiring the best for him with the same intensity as he desired the best for himself. You can read 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 1 to see this. Their lives were knit together. No sacrifice for each other was considered too great. And David described their love for each other as surpassing the love of women in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 26. And here is where the real issue starts to emerge. Some in our culture would immediately take this to be sexual in nature, for their love to be this deep then it had to be sensual. Their file, file love for each other, their strong friendship, and their agape love for each other, their willingness to sacrifice for each other, had to include Eros love or some kind of sexual desire. And this is where I have to disagree. 
Does love is love have to include sexual desire? Can love be intensely strong without being sexual? Can love meet the deepest needs of the heart and not have a sensual side? In other words, the real issue is not whether love is love, but whether love to be love must include Eros love. Must love be sexualized? Thus, the real issue is not love, but sex. What is the nature of sex? And for that matter, what is the nature of marriage? What is their design? What is their purpose? Do they even have a design and a purpose? No one is arguing that love is not love. Love is love. Truth is truth. God is God. The debate and disagreement is not over love, but over sex. Obviously, each person has their opinion and their own individual background. But I believe that there is a divine design for sex and for marriage. God designed one man and one woman to enjoy sexual intimacy within the protection and commitment of lifelong marriage. This was his design. And our biological design confirms it. Form does follow function. And biologically, one man and one woman fit together and can create the miracle of life together. It is amazing and awe-inspiring when you stop to think about it. While you are stopping and thinking about it, sex touches us at such a deep level that it needs the highest commitment and the strongest protection of agape love. The deepest wounds often come from the abuse, misuse, betrayal, and exploitation of sex for one's own selfish purposes. Almost anyone will agree with this, even if they disagree on everything else. During the controversies of his day, Jesus called people back to God's original design for sex and marriage. And he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh.
Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate male and female. The first poem in the Bible goes like this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In Hebrews, Genesis, in Hebrew, Genesis 1.27 is composed of three lines of four words each. Ve Yivra Elohim et Hadam Betzel Mav. Betzalam Elohim Bera Atav. Zekar Anakava Bara Otam. The great drama of creation moving from scene to scene, day to day, propelled by the powerful word of God, suddenly pauses. God deliberates within himself, within his nature, and then creates his masterpiece, his poem, his work of art humanity. We are meant to pause as well as to consider the beauty of his creation of us. Three two truths ring out in God's poem. So God created man in his own image. The first line puts the emphasis on God's creative work. God created us. We are not cosmic accidents. We are designed by an artist. We are designed for a purpose. Our complexity, our symmetry, our beauty all point to the handiwork of our creator. The wonder of the human body should be enough to show us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, according to Psalm 139.14. Isaac Newton even said, in the absence of any other proof, the thumb alone would convince me of God's existence. In the image of God, he created him. The second line puts the emphasis on our uniqueness and value. We are created in his image. We are supposed to stop and say, whoa, we are in his image. We reflect him in our nature, having intellect, emotions, and will. We represent him in our position, ruling, 
in stewarding his creation. And we can have relationship with him, knowing him and loving him and being intimately known and eonianly loved. We have value, not because of what we do, but simply because of who we are. We are image bearers of the Creator God. Male and female, he created them. The third line puts the emphasis on our complementary design. We are male and female. We are created in essence, but different in design. As Dr. Paula Johnson noted in her TED talk, speaking of the unique medical needs of men and women, she states, and I quote, every cell has a sex. That means men and women are different down to the cellular and molecular level. We are different across all of our organs, end of quote. We are created differently in order to complement one another, to complete one another, to need one another. We are made for relationship, not only with God, but also with each other. Two different beings experiencing oneness through relationship, biologically fitting together one man and one woman and miraculously creating new life. This is God's poetry and it is beautiful. God does not speak of multiple, multiple genders, just two, male and female. So for many in the population, why does it not feel that way? Why do they struggle with their identity? Why do some doubt their value? Why do some feel insecurity? Why don't some feel comfortable in their own skin and possibly in their own gender? The rhythm and the rhyme of God's poem were interrupted by sin. The beauty of Genesis 1, chapters 1 and 2 is marred by the tragedy of Genesis 3. The artistry of God's handiwork has been defaced. We still bear his image, but sin has left its ugly stain. Like a Word document opened in the wrong program, the divine poem has been scrambled, jumbled, mangled. 
We feel the effects of the fall. We live it. We experience it. And we lament it. But the solution to our insecurity and confusion and pain is not the redefinition of gender, not the rejection of the poet, or the resignation to a life of ambiguity. The solution is redemption. What was lost in Adam is refound in Jesus Christ. The one who wrote the original poem entered into humanity in order to reveal the words, delete the dark lines of sin, and rewrite the rhythm and rhyme in our hearts. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's Ephesians chapter number 2 and verses 8 through 10. And the Apostle Paul writes to us, in his epistle to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, the following words, and they state very clearly how it is that redemption occurs. He states here in verse 2, by which also ye are saved, since you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless... You have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Simply believing and trusting that places us into a relationship with Jesus Christ where we will have experienced the redemption that only he can bring. We are, as Ephesians states, his workmanship. The Greek word for that, poema. We take the English word poem from it. God's redemptive work is now his act of poetry. Think about this. Male and female, equal in essence, different in design, broken, confused, conflicted, separated by sin, remade, renewed, restored, redeemed by Christ. This is God's poetry, and it is still beautiful. Love is love, says nothing. 
God is love, says it all. Good day, and God bless. We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast.